Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast, Year of War and Peace. We're talking about Book 1, Chapter 14. The Countess helps her old friend Anna Mikhailovna. Or did she just get mikhailovna herself? And the jolly old Count Rostov seems to enjoy handing over fat stacks to his wife. Grumpy Shakespearean said, Man, Countess Rostova is not endearing herself to me. I liked her so much at first. She's lovely to Natasha and the younger kids, but mean to Vera and outright rude and threatening to the maid. The Countess was not feeling herself, and that always made her say, You girl, or you there, to the servants. I'm sure at least some of us have had an asshole boss whose moods we learn to read quickly for this exact reason. And the money has to be nice and clean, I outright rolled my eyes. The Rostovs certainly seem a bit detached from reality, in the way that very, very rich people often are, a thought only furthered by. Mitenka knows something. My assumption, the Rostovs are not as secure as the Countess thinks, perhaps. I get the impression that the Count is ignoring some problems and hand-waving them off as splendid. He seems to be sticking his head in the sand, I'm sure this will have absolutely no fallout whatsoever, slash sarcasm. Another plot point I am excited to see the resolution of. I do think Anna's friendship with the Countess is genuine, and the ending was very nice, sincere moment of friendship for them both. Just a personal comment, I'm really enjoying this book and the discussions here. Tolstoy is marvellous, he packs so much into a few pages. Awesome, thanks for that grumpy Shakespearean. Um, scrolling right along, Keng and Kenji and Carboy said, I get the feeling that the Rostov's safe is going to end up looking like the suitcase full of IOUs in Dumb and Dumber. <laughs> Brainless Shooter said this, I don't know how careless Count Rostov seems. Up until now, he doesn't look like he takes anything that seriously. No second thoughts about the incident with Pierre handing money out without further consideration, granted to his wife, but still, I don't think the Count will keep being as jolly throughout the whole book. I also wonder why the Countess didn't tell him the money was for Anna slash Boris. Is she always like that? As for the friendship between Anna and the Countess, I do think it's genuine, but I also think that Anna Mikhailovna is manipulating her a bit as she's doing with everyone else so far. Yeah, she can't help herself, that old Mikhailovna. Real Skydiver said, How much does 500 rubles back then compare to current US dollars? And why did he give her 700? I hope we see a gone with the wind situation where they hardly have to deal with poverty. Suddenly have to deal with poverty. They would be, that would be the most interesting part for me. Um, to give you an idea, says Gurdjie's Asomali. A warrant officer was earning 15 rubles a month at that time. A colonel was earning 85 rubles a month. Um, let's see. Someone, I think someone might have at some point posted a... Uh, oh, yeah, here we go. Literature fan says 700 rubles in 1805 is about 7,400 US dollars today. Cool. All right. So it's a lot. It's a lot. It's seven grand. Seven and a half grand. Uh, what else was I going to read here? Let me just scroll back up. Da, da, da. Um, 
Oh yeah, Zukov. I'm going to read Zukov's summary and then I'm going to read you the next chapter. Princess Drubetskoy gets back, goes back to Count Rostov. The Countess has secured 700 rubles, coincidentally after her husband bragged about spending 1,000 rubles on a cook to give the Princess Drubetskaya for Boris to get kitted out for military service. Although this experience could be awkward, it isn't, and Princess Drubetskaya and Countess Rostova end the chapter in a warm embrace, fawning over their deep friendship. Very cool. All right. Keep it pretty short tonight, and let's read chapter 18 slash 15. Countess Rostova, along with her daughters and a large number of guests, was already seated in the drawing room. The Count took the fellows into his study and showed off his collection of fancy Turkish pipes. From time to time he went out and asked, Isn't she here yet? They were waiting for Amaya Dmitrievna, Akrosimova. Akrosimova. Known in society as Le Terrible Dragon. A lady known not for her wealth or rank, but because she was outspoken, took no shit, and was a total badass. Maya Dmitrievna was known to the imperial family, as well as to all Moscow and Petersburg, and both cities speculated about her laughed privately at her rudeness and spun a really good yarn about her, but at the same time they all, without exception, were scared shitless of her. In the Count's room, the men talked secret man business amid a cloud of tobacco smoke. War, that was the subject, and recruiting for the war, which had recently been announced in a manifesto. None of them had seen the manifesto yet, but they had all heard about it. The Count was on the sofa, sat between two guests who were smoking and chin-wagging, he didn't chinwag or smoke, just craned his head from one side to, from one side and then the other, watching the smokers with a goofy pleasure and listened to the conversation of his two neighbours egging them on, stoking the proverbial fire between them. One of them was a sallow, clean-shaven civilian with a thin and wrinkly face, already old-looking, though he was dressed like someone young and fashionable. He sat with his legs on the sofa, making himself quiet at home, and with the amber mouthpiece shoved deep between his puckered lips, was inhaling the smoke desperately, screwing up his eyes. This was an older bachelor named Shinshin, a cousin of the Countess's, a man with a sharp tongue, as they say in Moscow society. He spoke condescendingly to the other, who was a fresh, rosy officer of the guards. The officer was spotlessly clean, brushed and buttoned, and held his pipe in the middle of his mouth, with red lips gently inhaling the smoke and then releasing it in rings. This was Lieutenant Berg, an officer of the Semenov Regiment. Boris was to travel with Berg to join the army. This was the very same Berg that Natasha had teased her elder sister Vera about, referring to him as her intended. The Count sat between them, his ears pricked up like a bilby. His favourite occupation, other than playing Boston, a game he was super keen on, was that of the fly on the wall especially when he managed to pit two hot-headed talkers at one another. Well then, mate, Montrez Honourable Alphonse Karlovich, said Shinshin, laughing ironically and mixing the most ordinary Russian expression with the choicest French phrases, which was something he tended to do. Vous compez, vous faire de rente sur le tat. You expect to make an income out of the government. You want to make something out of your company. 
No, Peter Nikolaevich. I'm just saying the cavalry has way less benefits than the infantry. Just put yourself in my shoes, Peter Nikolaevich. Berg was soft-spoken, polite and careful with his speech, always. He only ever spoke when the topic related to him directly. Otherwise, when he felt disconnected with the topic, he calmly shut his trap and kept it shut. He could remain... He could, sorry, he could remain trap-shuttin' for hours. He could remain trap-shuttin' for hours without qualm and without making others feel uncomfortable. But as soon as the conversation circled back around to something that concerned himself, he would chime in in response with a satisfied air. Put yourself in my shoes, Peter Nikolaevich. If I was in the cavalry, I'd get something like 200 rubles every four months even with the rank of lieutenant, but as it is, I get 230, said he, looking at Shinjin and the cow with a chipper, pleasant smile, as if it were obvious to him that his success was the chief desire of everyone else. And besides, Peter Nikolaevich, I, if I exchange into the guards, I'll be in a more premier, prominent position, continued Berg, and there's way more vacancies cropping up in the foot guards, and 230 rubles may think about it. I... Even managed to put some aside and send some to my father. He went on, went on puffing out a little smoke ring. Le balance y est. That settles it then. A German knows how to skin a flint, as the old saying goes, remarked Chin Chin, moving his pipe to the other side of his mouth and winking at the Count. The Count suddenly pissed himself laughing. The other guests noticed that Chin Chin was talking and came to listen. Berg was clueless, oblivious to the irony and indifference of his audience, and continued to boast about how, by exchanging into the guards, he'd already gotten a leg up over the cadet corps. How, in wartime, the company commander would probably cark it, leaving him as a senior in the corps, and how he would probably get promoted to commander, how popular he was with everyone in the regiment, and how pleased his father was with him. He clearly enjoyed boasting about all these things, and didn't seem to suspect that other people, too, might have their own interests. But it was all very innocent self-enthusiasm, and the healthy naivety of his youthful egotism was so clear that those who listened to him found his boasting quite charming. Well, young man, you'll be right, wherever you go, foot horse, foot or horse, that much I can say, said Shin Shin, patting him on the shoulder and taking his feet off the sofa. Berg smiled. The Count, followed by his guests, went into the drawing room. It was that familiar moment when all the guests at a big dinner party are expecting zakuska, hors d'oeuvres, and so avoid getting into any serious conversation for fear of inhibiting their ability to stuff face. But they don't want their impatience to look too obvious, so they mill around and engage in small talk. The host and hostess look towards the door, or towards each other, and the guests try to guess. Are they waiting for another guest to arrive, or the food? Pierre had arrived, just at dinner time, and being the awkward bugger that he was, sat in the middle of the drawing room on the first chair he had seen, blocking the way for everyone. The countess tried to get him talking, but he just grunted and muttered in response, preoccupied with naively looking around the room as if trying to find someone. He was the only person in the room not aware that he was in everyone's way. Most of the guests had heard about the whole 
tying a bear to a policeman fiasco and wondered how such a big, stout, quiet man, seemingly so modest and clumsy, could pull off such an epic prank on the copper. "'You just arrived, didn't you?' the Countess asked him. "'Oui, madame,' replied he, looking around. "'Have you seen my husband yet?' "'No, madame,' he smiled, an inappropriate smile. "'And you were in Paris, right? That must have been interesting.' "'Very interesting.' The Countess looked at Anna Mikhailovna, who understood the look immediately. Can you take this young man <clears throat> off my hands? Anna Mikhailovna sat beside him and started asking him about his father, but all her questions he answered in monosyllables. The other guests were chatting at full steam. The Razumovskis, bloody ripper it was, you're a legend. Countess Apraxina was heard on all sides. The Countess rose and went into the ballroom. Maya Dmitrievna, she called out. Yep, came the answer in a croaky voice, and Maya Dmitrievna came into the room. All the unmarried ladies, and even the married ones, except the really old ones, rose. Maya Dmitrievna stood in the doorway, tall and stocky, with her fifty-year-old grey curled head held high. She stood and surveyed the guests. She rolled her sleeves. Health and happiness to the name-day lady and her littlies, she said in Russian. She always spoke Russian. Ah, you old fart, she said, turning to the Count, who was kissing her hand. You're getting over Moscow, I dare say. Nowhere to go hunting with the dogs? What can you do, though, old man? Look at these kids of yours, so grown up. And she pointed at the girls. You'd better find them some husbands soon, like it or not. Well, she continued, how's my Cossack? Maya Dmitrievna always called Natasha a Cossack, and she stroked Natasha's arm as she fearlessly and happily approached to kiss her hand. I know she's a little scallywag, but I like her. She took a pair of pear-shaped ruby earrings from her huge reticule and having given them to the fresh-faced Natasha, who looked over the bloody moon about it on her saint's day feet, turned away at once and started speaking to Pierre. Oi, oi, mate, come here a second, she said, assuming a soft and high tone of voice. Come on, mate. And a quite ominous and quite ominously she rolled her sleeves even higher. Pierre went to her, looking at her in his childlike way through his specs. Come on, sweetheart, I won't bite. You know, I used to be the only person your father could trust when he was in favour. He's only straight shooter. And now, in your case, I feel like it's my duty. She paused. The room went quiet. It was clear she was about to spill some juicy gossip beans. You're a bloody treasure, aren't you? Bloody hell, a real treasure. Your old man is on his deathbed, and this one... She turned to the room, thumbing Pierre. Is out there tying policemen to bears. Shame on you, mate. We'd all be better off if you pissed off to the war. She turned away and gave her hand to the Count, who was doing his level best not to crack up laughing. Suppose it's time we hit the dinner table, said Maya Dmitrievna. The Count went into the dining hall first with Maya Dmitrievna. The Countess came in next on the arm of a colonel of hussars, an important man to them, because Nicholas would be going with him to the regiment. Then came Anna Mikhailovna with Shinshin. Berg gave his arm to Vera. Julie Karagina was all smiles coming in with Nicholas. After them, other couples followed, filling the whole dining hall. And last of all, the children, tutors and governesses followed one by one. The footmen started bustling about. Chairs scraped. The band started jamming out in the gallery. And the guests settled down in their places. Soon the Count's household band was drowned out by the clatter of knives and forks, the chit-chat of the guests, and the footsteps of the footmen. At one of them, 
At one end of the table sat the Countess with Maya Dmitrievna on her right and Anna Mikhailovna on her left. The other women were further down. At the other end sat the Count with the Hussar Colonel on his left and Shinshin and the other blokes on his right. The younger ones were midday, sorry, midway down the long table. Vera beside Burke, Pierre beside Boris, and on the other side was the children, tutors and governesses. From behind the crystal decanters and fruit cases, the Count was glancing at his wife and her tall cap with its light blue ribbons, and he kept topping up his neighbour's glasses and his own. The Countess, in turn, without neglecting her duties as hostess, threw significant glances back to her husband from behind the pineapples, whose face and bald head was redder than usual, contrasting sharply with his grey hair. At the ladies' end, there was a steady flow of chatter. The men's end grew louder and louder, especially the Colonel of Hussars, who was starting to look rather half-cut, eating and stuffing his face faster than anyone else, so that the Count singled him out as a role model to the other guests. Berg was being a real sweetie to Vera, telling her that love was not an earthly but a heavenly feeling. Boris was telling his new buddy Pierre who everyone was and exchanging, exchanging cheeky glances with Natasha, who was sitting opposite with the other children. Pierre didn't say much, but he took in the new faces and scoffed a ton of food. There were two soups to choose from, and he picked the turtle soup, then moved on to the game without missing a single dish or wine. The wines came seemingly from nowhere, from a butler to be exact, arriving at Pierre's wrist from behind with a whispered dry Madeira, Hungarian or Rhine wine, as the glass was placed. There were four crystal glasses engraved with the Count's monogram. Standing before his plate, he snatched them up at random and drank happily, looking around at the other guests, growing more and more fond of everyone as he drank. Natasha, who was opposite him, was looking at Boris in the way that 13-year-old girls look at the boy they've decided to love and have just pashed on with for the first time. Sometimes that very look found its way to Pierre, and that strange, lively little girl's look made him laugh, though he didn't know why. Nicholas sat a fair way away from Sonia, besides Julie Karagin, who he was talking to with the same involuntary smile. Sonia was doing her best to smile politely, but clearly she was being torn up inside by jealousy. She was going pale one second, blushing the next, and all the while doing her damnedest to overhear what Natasha, sorry, what Nicholas and Julie were talking about together. The governess kept looking around uneasily at the guests. Her place was among the children, and she was ready to stick up for the kids if any guests indicated they were pissy with them. The German tutor was trying to commit the experience to memory every dish and wine so he could send an account of it all to his people in Germany. He was stung when the butler carried over a bottle of wine in a napkin and passed right by him. He frowned, trying not to look like he cared, as if he wasn't interested in that bottle anyway, but was secretly fuming because no one would understand if he asked the butler for a little that he didn't want it to be greedy, but simply from a selfless desire for knowledge. Oh, alrighty, there we go. That was a long chapter. But the table is set. Everyone's ready to have a feast. And we're going to have a big feast chapter up next. So that'll be awesome. Alright guys, thanks for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.